Tom wakes up with Jacqueline. Tom stared at Jacqueline as she slept. I have always been a blubberer, he thought, so why on earth am I not crying now? The answer was not long in coming. Because you have been weak, Tommy. He nodded slowly. He could barely see her face in the dim pre-dawn light. Her dark hair was a perfect black, her cheek a faint haze of grey. He wondered just what she was dreaming about. She could be flying in her mind, but as still to me. A violent wave of sexual desire rocked his body. Tom remembered every detail of the night before. A great mystery had been solved for him. For as long as he could remember, he had wondered about the moment of sexual will. The women he had bedded in university had all been conquests of one kind or another. They had been blinded by his athletic prowess or good looks. They had felt honored to be going out with him. But still, at the end of every evening, he had felt the moment of sexual will, where he had made the decisive move which would result in either acceptance or rejection. Most times, it was acceptance. Nonetheless, it was still a frightening moment when he let his fingertips tickle a woman's ear in a motion picture house, or let his lips rest on the little depression between one of her knuckles. None of that had happened with Jacqueline. Tom had missed the company of women. He had been so damn polarized in his youth between Catherine and his mother, and it did not escape his attention that he generally thought of them in that sequence, Catherine and his mother, that he either bedded pretty women or was fast friends with plain ones. The concept of sexy female friend was rather beyond him. Tom's womanizing, which had been fairly extensive but not compulsive, had left him sated but unsatisfied. To his great discredit, he had been rather blasé about it at times. One enjoys a great meal, he said once to Hart. One does not marry the chef. This had been rather cruel to Hart, who had no idea, so to speak, how to even get to the restaurant district. He felt physical excitement, the thrill of the explorer trekking across new flesh, and truly enjoyed displaying his sexual prowess. He loved the little sighs and coos of surprise he was able to wring from a woman. He loved undermining their prudery with unprecedented licking and unknown angles. In bed, as in life, Tom was a sportsman to the hilt. But last night had been something quite different. The moment of sexual will had, he realized in hindsight, actually been Jacqueline's. She had put her hand on his forearm twice and had consciously applauded his return of her caress. He had wanted to kiss her all at once, to forestall something, if felt. But he had sensed that whatever his rush of desire wanted to forestall was a very good thing which should be experienced. So he continued to talk and listen to her, and something began to mount in his chest. Some sort of wonderful floating spiritual thing which was utterly beyond the flesh, not alien to it, just beyond it. The body is the pedestal whose base goes to the center of the world. Love is the statue which reaches beyond the sky. And the delicacy of everything that was being said was exciting beyond words. 
Every syllable was made of silk and rippled over the hairs on his flesh, drawing goosebumps under its tickling passage. And, to his eternal shame, he forgot about the coming war. This was why he could not cry, although he felt a kind of resting pleasure throughout his whole body, which was both unknown and unexpected. I am being unfaithful, he thought, shaking his head slowly, unable to stop staring at Jacqueline's still lovely face. I am engaged to be married in a few years or so, and my bride-to-be is most dark, most possessive. She will allow no other. But a part of himself, which he had always referred to as Weasel Tom, kept throwing up cowardly possibilities. So, if you have a few years and want to live life as richly as possible, take her deep into your heart and keep her there and stall, as only you know how, and say, we cannot get married as yet, not quite yet, and keep this up for three years or so until 1937, say, and then get married. By all means, your black bride will not begrudge you a first marriage as long as she is your last. And then, after you are married, you can stall about having children, because to have children would be beyond cowardly. You only need two or three years. You're 24. You just have to make it to 29. Not such a great distance. Not such a great distance. Then you will know. Then you will know. Tom shook his head. Whenever Weasel Tom began to repeat himself, it was because his certainty was fading. As he watched, Jacqueline stirred in her sleep, emitting a deep, whistling sigh. No, I have been greedy, and now we shall both pay. And I shall pay all the more as it should be. For I know that I am engaged. She does not know that I am engaged. Or, he thought with a sudden shudder, that she is also engaged. And it was that thought that broke him. For the briefest flickering he saw Jacqueline's skeleton through her skin and exposed arm. His propped elbow seemed to give way and he sank onto his back, closing his eyes tightly. A distant rumble of thunder echoed across the cold grey sky, thunder without rain. Tom had a sudden strong memory of lying with Reginald on the grass over the white cliffs of Dover long, long ago. They were blowing blades of grass between the balls of their thumbs. It was very hot. Thunder had come from across the sea. The boys had stared up, straining to see the flashes where their father walked, but the light was too bright. Cuthbert and Reginald discuss the Night of the Long Knives. The news lit up the face of Europe in a garish flash like a photograph taken from space. Hitler allowed the world to read its future from the palm of his hand, his red, dripping hand. The Night of the Long Knives, June 30th, 1934. In a single night, Hitler murdered all of the top men in the S.A., including Ernst Rom, its leader, and Hitler's close personal confidant and friend. His crime? He had been seen speaking to the French ambassador. 
Hitler demonstrated the length and virulence of his memory for personal insult. Von Schleicher, the man who had preceded Hitler as Chancellor, was killed in his bed. Hitler also restored the ancient tradition of ending not only the life of an enemy, but his bloodline as well. Wives and children were slaughtered. No witnesses, no chance of retaliation. The message was clear. Hitler referred to this as the Rome Revolt, which could have been instructive to murder enemies in their beds and then claim it as self-defense might have given Western statesmen pause. Most of them had read Mein Kampf, Hitler had advocated political murder in its pages. Now he was demonstrating that he did not shrink from putting his ideas into practice. The news hit the foreign office like a thunderbolt. Reginald was in a frenzy. Even Cuthbert was almost roused. A number of the men had been summoned by telephone to a dawn meeting at Whitehall to discuss strategy. Cuthbert set the tone. Many of those around the table took great comfort in his pedantic hypnotic tone. We have been pitched a wild ball, which is more common in this business than many of you young men realize. One does not earn one's paycheck by negotiating with reasonable men. This much can be achieved by shopkeepers. The great challenge of this office is to negotiate with unreasonable men. This is our task. We welcome this surprising move by Herr Hitler, for it gives us the chance to truly earn our daily bread. Now the policy of this foreign office is that we shall find out what Hitler wants within reason— and then endeavor to give it to him. This has not been a hard policy to sell, since the alternative is to oppose him out of hand, which we have neither the strength nor will to do, we being the French and ourselves, of course. The regrettable excesses of last night do not help our cause, but they do not destroy it either. The gravest danger that England now faces is that the public might perceive that Hitler is mad and thus cannot be negotiated with. This cannot be true. A madman would set his armies on forests or to fight the sea. Hitler has not done this. His actions are monstrous, of course, to our way of thinking, but they are far from insane. In one decisive night he has struck down any possibility of a counter-revolution. If only the Mensheviks had possessed this man's will, all might be different in Russia today. Cuthbert took a deep, cavernous breath. His face, always tired, looked almost inhumanly exhausted at this time of day. Be that as it may, he said, we must manage the British public's perception of this event, and we must do it now. I have placed several calls into British newspapers, and have managed to moderate the editorials for the morning editions. However, we must meet with them face to face for the afternoon editions, by which time they shall have had the opportunity to compose them. 
Cuthbert seemed to run quite out of steam at this point. He yawned. I remain open to suggestions. Reginald raised his hand. What, do you have to pee, Spencer? asked Cuthbert. Just speak. Sorry, said Reginald. This is my first meeting. I believe that we should take a three-pronged approach. First of all, the lexicon of this event must point towards an extremity, not a polarization. English! English! snapped Cuthbert. We must characterize Hitler's actions as extreme. I think, with all due respect, sir, that the term regrettable is not strong enough. Reginald paused to gauge Cuthbert's reaction. It was unreadable. He plunged on. So, we use the language of excess as, as we would characterize a drinking binge. A man drinks to excess. This includes the fact that drinking to moderation is acceptable. So Hitler acted in, in excess. Reginald could not stand to try and decipher the mood in the room. He continued his vision swimming in panic. The second prong is that we should, we should use terms to describe Hitler's actions in ways which could be I interpreted as positive, uh, tough-minded, uh, resolute. Absolutist, uh, dis decisive, that, that, that sort of thing. The third is that, that we must condemn the actions. Uh, that, that is risky, I know, but we have to retain our moral legitimacy. We, we condemn the actions in the strongest possible terms, we can say, without ever saying what those terms are or, or ident identifying the specific actions. Cuthbert scowled. It was like watching a cave collapse. What good would that do us, Spencer? Well, we have to separate the actions from the man. Everyone will focus on what happened rather than who caused it. A thin-haired young man spoke. And we have no proof that the orders came from Hitler. Cuthbert favored him with a withering stare. We can't say that, you fool. We have argued for over a year that we must negotiate with Hitler. If we now say that he was not responsible... For last night, that he is not the top man, why on earth have we been negotiating with him? I know it's early, but do try to think a little. And if you find that beyond you, keep your fucking mouth shut. It was early for swearing, but they all knew that Cuthbert had a predilection for base Anglo-Saxon syllables. He turned to Reginald, who stumbled on. We, we condemn the actions, and then... We, we focus on saying that we have to talk more with Hitler. He struggled for a stronger ending, but it did not come. He forced his tongue to stand still. The first two won't get you fired, said Cuthbert heavily. The last one might. Why would we talk with Hitler now? He's a brutal murderer. B -b -b but, stammered Reginald, b -b 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 a practical one. His voice throbbed with excitement. That, that's what we have to focus on. What he did was practical, pragmatic, a way to hold on to power. So he's not mad. He acts for his own self-interest, so he, he can be negotiated with. The thin-haired man, his face almost beat red, tried again. We have to say that he's not a criminal. Cuthbert turned his enormous face to the young man. You will kindly shut up. If you ever use that word again within these walls, I shall hurl you from the roof. He turned back to Reginald. You propose a paradox, Spencer. 
How are you going to say that Hitler is not a madman without using the term madman? We can't use that word, of course, said Reginald rapidly. That, that, that's why I say that we use a pragmatic approach. He's a hard-headed businessman, eliminating competition. He's ruthless. He's, he's unbending. His methods are not our methods, but he is the legitimate head of a European power. If, if we accept Hitler's legitimacy, we cannot reject his methods out of hand. Cuthbert's eyes sharpened. Reginald wanted to wipe his own forehead, but didn't want to draw attention to his nervousness. "'What's that?' demanded Cuthbert. "'Hitler is—well, if we say that Hitler is legitimate, which we have been saying for the last eighteen months, then his methods don't really matter. We might, we might hate them, think they're not cricket, but he is the head of Germany, and so you're rambling,' snapped Cuthbert. "'Focus, for heaven's sake!' Reginald frowned. He felt prickles of sweaty tension stabbing all over his flesh. He shook his head, trying to clear his thoughts. Wait, please. It's important. His face suddenly cleared and his eyes shone. Negotiation or war? Come on, then. Well, we, we can say all... All, all I suggest, if, if we like, but, but then we have to put in, just at the bottom of the article or, or the speech, because only those who doubt us will read that far, that the only other choice we have is to try to remove Hitler from power. If we admit that we cannot negotiate with him, then we shall have to go to war. Or assassinate, said another man. Cuthbert, still staring at Reginald, pointed a warning finger at the other man. Another word, that is, verboten. We don't want to start that ball rolling, or we shall never sleep at night. So, Spencer, you believe that this is the right course of action? Yes, sir, said Reginald. He toyed with adding, it is the only course of action, but lacked the courage. He still could not tell what Cuthbert thought. And you will stake your career on this? Reginald nodded, then realized that looked weak, cleared his throat, and said in what he hoped was a decisive tone, Yes, sir. Cuthbert stared at him for a long moment, and then shrugged. Write it up. You have one hour. Now, clear off the rest of you and try to give me some reason for your presence at my table. Reginald got up with everyone else. Cuthbert said, "'Detail, Spencer. You cannot negotiate if you have no sense of detail.' Reginald paused. Cuthbert stared at him. "'What did I say?' "'You said, clear off the rest of you.' Reginald smiled and sat down again. "'Everyone says everything in the little things.' said Cuthbert. You cannot stop paying attention for even a moment. He smiled, which was not a pretty thing. And you have got to get a damn sight better at thinking on the fly. It's gruesome, like watching a woman give birth to a blowfish. Take a pause. Gather your ideas. Look thoughtful. People always pay attention to the slowest speaker. And the longer you wait, the more the chance that you'll speak last. 
your offspring are going to get burned alive. Reginald's head shivered. Excuse me? You get the first draft, and it will be slaughtered. But always get the first draft. Every damn fool wants the last draft, but you're just polishing by then. To hell with that. The first draft is everything. Thank you, said Reginald. That is rare praise. What? Sorry, but you don't often give advice. It's kind of praise, isn't it? Cuthbert laughed harshly. Now you're just trying to impress me. I want to ask you something. Why should we negotiate with Hitler? Why? There you are, thinking out loud again. You're comical. Every question is valid. Every answer is weighed. Try again. Tell me why we should negotiate with Hitler. Because he is the freely elected head of a sovereign country. He is no longer elected. He is a dictator. But he was elected. We have no idea what the will of the German people is now. He has guns to their heads. They might want to get rid of him. We have no proof of that. No, snapped Cuthbert. That is weak, weak, and never enough. Never use negative proof. You must always be positive. Again, we refuse to assume the motives of the German people. Better. We must deal with the world as it is. They want a dictator. They have one. We are the British Foreign Office, not the German Office of Internal Affairs. Weak. Forget snappy opposites, and there's no such office. Reginald nodded rapidly. Uh, Negotiation is the way of civilized people. Crap. Hitler didn't negotiate with his enemies last night. Never use a brush that thick. All right, uh, if, if we refuse to deal with the dictatorships, we can forget about most of the world. Why should I care about the rest of the world? Your brush is still too big. The, the, the principle of the empire is that justice is universal. No, you're right, too, too big. Cuthbert pushed his chair back from the table and clasped his hands behind his ears. Make your arguments personal. We defend England. We defend England, said Reginald rapidly, and, and so if we overthrow a country we do not like, we open the gates to endless war. Not enough. Too abstract, endless war, Jesus. Reginald felt anger in his frame. It was directed at Cuthbert's contempt, but it still seemed to clarify his own thinking. Two points. One, let's say we can replace Hitler. He is loved by the Germans. The new man declares war on us. How would you like that? Good. Good. Point two. Eight. Three points. All right, but only three. I have to take a shit. Point, point two. We, we introduce violence into the international sphere at a time where, when we are hard-pressed to defend the empire. We say, you can replace governments you do not like. We just feed the cause of local nationalism in the empire. Some people hate the empire. Ah, but uh, what, what if the empire revolts and then Europe goes to war? A two-front war is a disaster. Imagine ten fronts or a hundred. We will not last a week. Better. Nazis in Trafalgar Square. I can identify with that. Point three. 
We could never undertake to overthrow the Nazi government without a public debate, so we lose all elements of surprise. And it would never pass anyway. We'd tip our hand, madden Hitler, and risk war. And to what benefit? One does not strive for the unachievable. Nice, pragmatic touch. You have one great gaping hole in your argument, though. Reginald waited. Germany has been disarmed. If they are going to war, we have to stop them now, or never. The British government does not initiate force against other countries. Bullshit. Germany invades France. We send over troops and airplanes, stall them to the east of Paris. We get Russia to attack Germany from the east. We beg the Americans for aid. Hitler would be mad to try again. It would be 1918 all over again. But what if Hitler is mad? You have come full circle. Reginald paused, gathering his arguments. Oh, for God's sake, grunted Cuthbert, letting his chair fall forward with a thump. You are nimble when you're moving, I'll grant that, but sweet God, you're slow off the mark. You cannot cover all positions. It's insane to try. People either believe you or they don't. There are maybe five percent of people in any debate who might conceivably change their minds. You have to sound plausible to them. That's all. Appeal to people's prejudices. Attempt to sway the indecisive, who are fundamentally unpredictable and will probably go against you next time. But it's a moment-by-moment affair. You never have enough information. Never. See to the pants, Sonny Spencer. See to the pants. Now go and write me something smashing. While he was working on his text, Reginald was interrupted by a telephone call. Only two people could get through his secretary no matter what he was doing. Neither of them was his wife, so he took the call. Oh, Reginald, cried a woman's voice. Reginald frowned, feeling a terror in the pit of his stomach. His pencil froze in mid-slash. Mother? he whispered. He had never heard his mother this passionate about anything other than Tom. He dropped his pencil and put his hand on his chest. What are you going to do? wailed his mother. You have the papers, I assume? he said, attempting a dry tone which did not work. What? Are you going to do? She gulped, her voice catching in a heartbreaking manner on the last word. I've been lucky, Mother. I've been given the chance to write the first draft of our response. We'll be sitting down with the editors of the major newspapers this afternoon. That is good. My son, my Reginald, she said. His heart contracted even further as if it were cramping. He remembered to breathe. I wanted to say, said Ruth's tinny voice, that I have the greatest faith in your abilities. You are doing so so much more than your, your brother to protect us. Her voice dropped to a little whisper. He crushed the receiver into his ear. I am so frightened, Rach. With her admission, his heart started again. Black blood coursed through his chest. Oh, so now that you are frightened... I am the favoured offspring, a little too fucking late, mother. It is a grave situation, 
he said slowly, enjoying every baited syllable. What are you going to do? I can't talk about that, mother. Tell me! Her voice was agonized. I can't. Unless... What? What? Unless you promise to keep it secret from everyone, father, Tom, everyone. I will. It would be unfair for father to know this, and Tom has a gossip's tongue. I will take it with me to the grave. Tell me, Reginald. This is a promise. It's more than my job. I could go to jail. I promise. On, on my father's name. All right. We are toying with several options. Reginald wondered if his line was tapped. It was inconceivable, so he allowed himself some liberty. Assassination is one. No! His mother cried out as if a sword were being pulled out of her innards. We have to be practical, mother. Herr Hitler is a murderer. We are also considering the possibility of declaring war. There was a silence. Reginald let the phone fall back from his ear a little, wondering if he had gone too far. Almost thirty seconds passed. War. Now is the time, mother. He is relatively unarmed. But he has aeroplanes. Oh, God, Tom is a pilot. He's an instructor, mother, said Reginald, feeling a twinge of regret. They won't send him against the enemy. Oh, Reginald, she sobbed. Is there nothing else? Well, I am fighting against these options. Reginald, why would... He smiled, knowing that she wanted to demand why he had presented the worst options first, knowing how they would affect her. But she was afraid, afraid he would hang up if criticized. His smile widened. I want us to ignore it. Ignore it. As if nothing happened. It's an internal matter. Internal. Her voice was weak with relief. Reginald could imagine her slumping back into the sofa, her knuckles at her lips, just like the women in the Great War receiving their terrible news. Reginald knew that his mother wanted to ask him if there would be a war, but that she was too terrified to hear his answer. Or she thinks I will lie to her. Either possibility was all right with him. He would have loved to continue their conversation. He said as much to his mother, and it was true. But I have to get this recommendation into Mr. Rathbone within a half hour. I am not allowed personal call, so I shall have to call you tonight. Unless I am working late. We shall talk soon, mother. Chin up. There was a pause. Reginald knew that she was about to say something else. He became enraged or terrified at what it might be and jammed the phone receiver back into its cradle with a vicious sweep as if he were beheading a whimpering pet. Jacqueline wakes up. Jacqueline opened her eyes. Tom suddenly felt self-conscious, like a worshipper praying to an invisible god which suddenly shows up in the flesh. No, she murmured lazily, stretching her hands over her head. That's a nice sight to wake up to, a lucky soul whose hair does not turn to crap overnight. To hell with my breath, kiss me. He did. She knew that he was hesitating, but decided to let it be. 
Last night, she said, although it was probably this morning, I thought as I fell asleep that when I woke up, I would have no idea where I was, and that what I felt when I realized it would be an important sign. Jacqueline reached up and touched Tom's left earlobe with her fingertips. No matter how strong the man is, she murmured, this is always so soft. Tom smiled down at her, recalling how he used to love playing with Catherine's earlobes. He could have spent all morning telling Jacqueline about Catherine. I'm not going to embarrass you by asking how long you've been staring at me. I just hope I wasn't sleeping with my mouth open. She touched the pillow by her head. No drool, that's always good. I love you. The thought came into his mind as loud and insistent as a rolling bell. That is such nonsense, you know so little about her. My, but what intense eyes you have, she said. Cheer. Last night was wonderful. Yes. Yes, it was. I never once thought, what am I doing here? Why is this man on top of me? Tom smiled. Why am I on top of this man? Well, we did roll around quite a bit, and I wake up and I'm happy to be here. You let me know what that means. I want to take you to a park, feed you cheese, and ask you everything. I like cheese. Jacqueline giggled. It had never really occurred to Tom that she could giggle, but it was a nice little merry sound. But enough. Enough. I'm sorry, Jacqueline, he said softly. Her dark eyes flashed silent alarm. Why? I cannot date. I cannot. She lay on the pillow, unmoving, waiting. I cannot date, and I, I cannot tell you why I cannot date, because if I'm wrong, you, then you will be anxious and depressed for no reason. So, sorry, that's a riddle. Her mouth worked and then opened. What were you doing last night, then? It, it came by surprise. I wasn't prepared. Wasn't prepared? She struggled up into her elbows. Wasn't prepared. I've been flirting with you for two months and you weren't prepared. I'm so sorry. What? You want to throw me off? Throw me off. But don't look at me like a lost puppy when you're telling me to go. I don't want you to go. But those are a coward's words. Jacqueline's jaw tightened. I knew it. She muttered, averting her eyes, her hands flexing and loosening. I looked at you and I said, he's a cat, a rake, a player. But I couldn't help myself. Poor Jackie, always putting her foot in her heart with cleats. She took a deep breath, tears spilling over her cheeks. Tom shifted back on the bed. Jacqueline kicked the covers aside violently. All right, get out of the room, she cried. My skin is off limits now. Tom stood up slowly, reluctantly. Hurry up, I have to get dressed to go home now. Stop mooning around. He went out into the hallway of his little flat. The door was slammed shut behind him. He could hear her sobbing inside. She did not cry so that he could hear or to make a point. She cried because she was heartbroken and felt used and, and loved him. But that is nonsense as well. She knows almost nothing about me. Tom felt that he would love nothing more than to open the door and hug her thrashing form until they could melt into one. But it was impossible now. He had thrown himself off the cliff. No choice was possible, no will, no turning back. He mouthed the words, I'm sorry, knowing how useless it was. 
Jacqueline came out of the bedroom, her head ducking. A thin brown pair of stockings were half hanging out of her handbag. She had her shoes in her hand. Her thoughts were clear to him. I shall look like a whore leaving your flat in the state. A policeman shall stop me and ask if I have been violated, and I shall say yes, but that it's beyond the reach of law. Tom almost said you do not have to pay for your course, but he realized that were she to kill him directly afterwards, no jury of women would convict her, and rightly so. Jacqueline did not turn to him. She did not raise her eyes. She did not speak. She moved like a prisoner attempting a jailbreak under the eyes of a doubtfully sympathetic guard. She fled from his flat. She did not close the door. He felt the fact that he would never see her again. Tom sat heavily on his ratty sofa. He reached down and played with the frayed seam of an old cushion. She was happy with me, though I live in such a manner. He wanted to cry. He wanted the release that only tears could bring. He thought of sad things, her face on waking, her face on leaving, her face on the street, her hands clutching her bag, trying to make it home before breaking down, how they might be getting ready for the park instead of exploding apart. But nothing came. Tom frowned. This was most unusual. It had not happened many times before, maybe five times when he left Oxford, on the airplane home from Germany, after debating Reginald. Oh, dear, thought Tom. When I am sad but cannot cry, it is because I have the wrong notion about what is happening. But the war must make me a monk. I can do nothing about it. I was weak last night. I have hurt a poor woman. I made a promise I could not keep. So sad. So sad but it would have been much worse if I had pretended. The sticky plaster must come off. One tug. I was wrong to be weak. I can never apologize enough or explain. She would say, Oh, no, Tom, there's not going to be a war, and even if there is, we shall face it together. But she has not seen, and it cannot be explained. No one on this island has the eyes to see. She will smile and cajole me, and I shall fall into the blackness. She would keep trying to prod me, but I would be unable to respond. No. Let her live out her short life in the illusion of love and longevity. Let her not be shadowed by what I know. Tom scowled. He always hated it when his inner justifications began to sound pompous and biblical. I have been a bastard because I made a promise I cannot keep. I cannot undo that, but I can refuse to make another. He lay back on the sofa, closing his eyes. He could feel the hard heel of a bad headache planted deep in his brain. He could not cry from self-pity. He could not cry because he had hurt another soul. He could not cry because he was alone, because that was his choice. He could not cry until his newspaper was delivered. He could not cry until he got up, opened the door, and looked at the headline. He could not cry until he sat back down on his sofa, his eyes gulping the terrible words, the text of the Night of the Long Knives. 
He could not cry until that moment, but then he did cry. He cried in great racking sobs. He cried the tears of a man spat out of a sealed coffin by an earthquake. He cried because that night was like words written in the sky which everyone could see. He cried because the world now had eyes and could see, see and act, turn from the flames to come. He cried because he might live. The world might live so he could love. And he cried because the papers had not come before Jacqueline had left, because that might be a loss beyond repair. Quentin comforts Ruth over Germany. Quentin came home as soon as he read the newspapers. He was taking a train to Exeter. He got off at the following stop, turned around, and went straight back to London on the next train. War is not inevitable. War is not inevitable, he thought over and over in time with the clicking rhythm of the carriage's wheels, as he had done since a small child. Quentin had a terrible dread of inevitabilities. He regularly damned people in his own mind as being defeatist or resigned. The world is what we will, was one of his newer mottos. If everyone accepts that war is inevitable, then war is inevitable. Quentin was not alone in this formulation. His was an age without philosophy, and so the causes of the Great War were unknowable. The unconscious had replaced the absolute, and so petty misunderstandings had replaced moral evil. The Great War was the result of foolish pride and immature incremental one-upmanship. Everyone makes wild claims, no one can back down, and lo and behold, there is a war! The greatest slaughter in history had, to Quentin's mind, the same cause as a bar fight among belligerent and uneducated drunks. The psychological approach painted a picture of leaders who were content to send millions to the slaughter to save face in a drawing room. The contradiction bothered him not at all. Quentin believed in the state. He believed in the benevolent power of government. He liked the growing welfare state. He liked the idea that all social problems could be solved through an open-minded partnership between business, labor, and government. Like most intellectuals in the 1930s, Quentin divided mankind into two groups. The first, which included the middle and lower classes, military men, and the aristocratic politicians, were those lost in a silly admiration of the past. They did not know what was really good for them. They had to be managed, pacified, controlled. The government would take from them and share their wealth with the less fortunate. It was moral to share. This was unquestioned. And to compel people to be moral is exactly the same as if they had behaved morally themselves of their own free will in the first place. Society must help the less fortunate. Thus, forcing people to help the less fortunate through taxation and redistribution is moral. It is what they should be doing in the absence of compulsion anyway, so the compulsion is moral. These thoughts ran around his mind over and over as he read the newspaper. It was truly a gruesome business. Last night, hundreds of Germans had been dragged from their beds and slaughtered out of hand. This Hitler fellow was clearly no one to be trifled with. But, and Quentin had here to gather arguments for his wife, but surely this now meant that Hitler could let down his guard. 
A revolution would not have helped Germany. It would be worse if the communists had gotten in. The communists were international. They wanted to overthrow all Western democracies. At the worst, Hitler was nationalistic and racial. So he wants to unite the Teutonic peoples, Quentin imagined saying to Ruth. We give him the six million Germans in Austria, the three million in Czechoslovakia, the 350,000 in Danzig, perhaps. But then what? Where will he go then? There are no other significant groups of Germans elsewhere in the world, and empires are exhausting. He cannot rule three foreign localities and then wage war. And if he moves eastwards into Czechoslovakia, say, then the Russians will have something to say about it. Stalin won't want Hitler on his doorstep. The last Russian war with Germany cost the Tsar his position. Stalin won't stand for unbridled German aggression. Don't cry, dear. He knew that she would probably not be worried about Reginald, at least not as much. If war came with Germany, then Reginald would be assigned westward to negotiate with the United States for aid, probably, since there would be precious little to do with Germany. And if civilian bombing was threatened, then Reginald, Quentin, and Ruth would be moved out of London. No, it was Tom who would weigh the heaviest on her mind. Tom the pilot. Tom who seemed hostile to Germany, which was odd because he'd always liked that grey-haired busybody Gunther. Quentin sighed, closing his eyes and sitting back in his seat. It has something to do with Catherine as well. Tom has always had a taste for simple-minded folk. No doubt that was why he couldn't survive at Oxford. Cockney politics just wouldn't fly there. It is strange. I don't understand what makes Tom tick. Not a bit. Because he is both very intelligent, very simple, bright, but unsubtle, uncomplicated. An image tickled at his mind, Newton sitting under an apple tree. Sometimes the most intelligent are the most intelligible. Quentin shook his head. That nonsense wouldn't help. His youngest son, though handsome, charismatic, and an excellent rower, was no genius. He never wants to find the cause of things, to fix things at their root. He just wants to fight what is. He never wants to find out why it is. Too harsh, Quentin knew. It's not as if I have any real understanding about what causes Nazism. There must be something deranged in the soil. When he got home, Ruth was where he feared she would be. In bed. Over the past few years, she had given up the practice of taking to bed during the day. True, she did go to bed earlier when she was sad, but she was able to pry herself from it in the morning. Quentin remained vaguely guilty about his wife's transformation. He knew, deep down, that he had not really helped her mourn her grievous losses. He had, in the eternal manner of the alpha male, attempted to perform tasks to distract her from her emotions. He gave her money, a fine house, holidays, all possible comforts and luxuries. Of course, the chasm between her inner poverty and outward wealth made Ruth feel worse. She felt, through much of the 1920s, that she had missed a hot air balloon which was rising out of sight. There was no point rising or jumping for something so distant. And besides, she could never convince herself that her absence on the balloon was ever really noticed. How had this been solved? Well, they had become poor, and Quentin had gone into politics. Material losses roused her, and she could finally do something to assuage her terror of war. She walked the campaign trail with Quentin and gave speeches. Something grand and terrible 
was within her. Something which made those with lesser losses want to cradle and save her, and obey her. She spoke of the need for peace so achingly that her words always seemed biblical in timber. Ruth provided, as Quentin had suspected and hoped, the heart of the candidate. He could be hard-headed and leave emotion to his wife. He always grinned and deferred to her when asked about social issues. My wife is the sentimental one, he would say. I married her for it. Thus men voted for him because he was practical. Women voted for him because he deferred to his emotional wife. They were a team. But they were joined against a common enemy. That much was clear. They were not a team facing each other, but facing the future. Ruth had not become better. The world had finally done what all Quentin's machinations had been unable to do. It had distracted her from herself. But it was a delicate balance. Quentin needed a dangerous world to keep his wife from collapsing back into depression. But if the world became too dangerous, she would collapse back into depression. Quentin opened the door. Ruth was sitting in bed, her head lowered, her arms hanging in their awfully familiar limpness. Catherine sat beside the bed, and Quentin got a strange sensation. This house is an emotional ecosystem which I am scarcely master of. And then another thought followed. Reginald will never need comforting. He is a man of action. Tom cannot brush his teeth without weeping, but... He does not need comforting. He just leaks like a glass of ice water. But Ruth either stares or weeps emptily. I cannot comfort her. But now I need her despite her self-indulgence. Hundreds of Germans are murdered and my wife takes to her bed. Ruth glanced up as Quentin pushed the door open. He mistook her expression of shock and almost horror and checked his head. Sure enough. His hat was still on, unforgivable. Quentin leaned forward on his heels. He put his newspaper on a lacquered cabinet. He clasped his hands in front of him, trying to assume the facial expression of a sympathetic nurse he had once had at the age of nine when he had his tonsils out. How are you, dear? Her blue eyes were intense, terrifying. Her lip quivered. Shrothe, murmured Catherine, touching her cheek. Quentin imagined Catherine's huge form enfolding his wife's thin frame like some reversal of a butterfly's emergence. He imagined Ruth's hand reaching out of Catherine's enormous cleavage for a glass of water. He felt an erotic stirring and blinked in surprise at his own thoughts. The wife and the maid, what a threesome! Stop it! Quentin stepped forward, taking off his hat and putting it on the bed. Then he sat at Ruth's feet. He felt a sudden flash of irritation at Catherine's continued presence. Who does she think she is, some fat sister? I'm all right, Quentin, said Ruth in that weak, empty tone that really set his teeth on edge. I talked to Reginald, and he thinks that things will turn out all right. Good old Reggie, cried Quentin, patting the cover, trying to find one of her legs. 
It's... It's like we're going back in time. Ruth murmured, her eyes filling with tears. Quentin looked away. It's all. I feel like ghosts are coming back to kill us. No, not kill us. Make us walk with them. Hold their hands, which are not hands. Catherine crossed herself. Don't speak that way. It's true. I have to speak. Not speaking all those years did me no good. Would you like some tea, dear? Asked Quentin, half-rising, giving up his quest for a leg. She needs for you to sit and listen, said Catherine. Quentin sat down. Oh, and a dictatorship of women. Oh, Quentin, cried Ruth. I was too small a plot to bury five men in. I still dream of them within me, you know, sometimes groping for a light. Catherine's head lowered, and Quentin could see her eyes filling. A dictatorship of waterfalls. But he set his jaw and raised his eyes to his wife. Ruth said, I can't speak of them now so many years later. I had to bite off my words so many times that I just seem obsessed. But they are warning me about the future, Quentin. They stand in a line and point to the east. To Germany, he said. It is only a few hundred of their own, but it has loosed something. It is something deeper than Germans for Hitler. The men he killed were Germans, so Germans overall is a lie. And if he is willing to kill Germans, which are the most important race to him, why would he stop with us? He's not coming for us, murmured Quentin. Not now, not yet. Do you think Reginald can negotiate with them? Reggie hasn't been there long enough. He won't be allowed to do anything that direct. Oh, come on. He and Cuthbert are thick as thieves. Reginald has influence. He's writing the F.O. position for the newspapers. Really? Asked Quentin, his heart glowing. Good lad. Clever lad. Ruth's face fell again. We shall never escape. Quentin forced himself to ask, What? Our natures. She shook her head quickly, making a flowing tear zigzag on her cheek. Not our natures, but our weakness in the face of... Oh, Quentin, I can't even say the word. Evil, said Catherine. Quentin felt his anger towards her come back, but he did not want to upset his wife, who clutched to Catherine's forearm. Yes, said Ruth, we are so content, so complacent. We think that everyone is like us, but we don't negotiate with gangsters. And we have all the power in the world over them. How can we... How can we control everything over there? Hitler says he wants peace. He has some complaints. We have to listen to them to avoid war. We are in no position to wage war just now. He wants... He says he wants what he already has. Sorry? Peace. He can't attack. We disarmed Germany. He knows we won't attack him. So he says he wants peace. The question... Ruth's face broke again. The question is... How does he act when he has the power? He has no power over, so he wants peace. But within his own land, where he has power? And there, where he has power, he acted brutally last night. Quentin shuddered. Despite himself, his wife's terror and despair were worming their way into his skin. Be strong! So you think he is insane? He asked. Ruth nodded, then shook her head. I don't know what that means. Catherine scowled. 
It's what we say when we mean evil. Catherine, said Quentin, would you be so kind as to get me a cup of tea and some biscuits? I haven't eaten since seven. Catherine paused for a moment, but there was no real possibility of non-compliance. She patted Ruth's hand once more, then placed it gently on the bed, stood up laboriously, and left the bedroom. Quentin took her place in the little chair. My lord, he thought as he sat, my buttocks barely cover it. What was Catherine feeling? Dear, he said, taking her hand, I won't pretend to you that the situation is not dangerous. It is. It is our most dangerous period since the war, but you know that Reginald and myself are absolutely committed to keeping the peace. Yes. And you know that we are both in rather unique positions to ensure that peace will prevail. Yes. And that we will work as hard as humanly possible to keep the peace. Yes. Yes, I know, dear. But, asked Quentin, unable to keep a shade of irritation out of his voice, he had a memory of having exactly the same conversation with Tom when he was six about a monster under the bed. Demonstrations and reason are useless in the face of such paranoia. But what if it is too late already? There's no need to whisper, laughed Quentin. I don't believe there are any spies in the closet taking notes for Adolf. Ruth did not get angry, which was probably his intention. Her eyes just widened a little. I mean it, though, Quentin. I mean it, and you should see that I mean it. Yes, yes, I know you do. So you think that there is going to be a war and that we are all just doomed? Well, he smiled, forgive me, dear, but the first thought that jumps into my mind is that we had better probably keep you off the podium for just a wee while until you feel better. Ruth listened. She still did not become angry. Instead, Quentin found himself enraged. Quentin, she said, do you think that there might be a war? Of course there might be a war. I might get hit by a bus. A rain of frogs might bury London alive. Anything is possible. Hitler cleans some house. I don't think it's the end of the damn world. Ruth burst into tears. What? demanded Quentin. What? God damn it! She shook her head, her fist rising to her mouth. He always half expected her to suck her thumb. The whistle of the kettle rose from the kitchen downstairs. Quentin scowled. He had so many memories associated with that daily sound. Too many of them were like this, like this damn moment. Me resisting her despair, she bursting into tears as if I have slapped her. He remembered a lovely evening a few years ago when they had sat by a fire and Ruth had turned and said, I love you. Those moments keep things going, but they are getting too fucking far apart. Quentin scowled even further. He did not like to swear, even in his own mind. Forcing his hand, he reached out and patted his wife's limp forearm. He heard Catherine coming up the stairs. The whistling of the kettle continued. What the hell is she doing? Ruth sobbed on. Her hands began to twitch, the fingers curling in on themselves. Quentin watched them in fascinated suspicion. If she's faking, it's very real. The door opened with a little bang. Catherine stood panting in the doorway. Ruth! she cried, glancing at Quentin. What is it? Catherine! cried Ruth, holding out her hands. Catherine came forward, clambering on the bed, 
and pulled Ruth's sobbing face into her massive chest. Quentin frowned, staring at this merged beast of female suffering. The wail of the kettle continued. Ruth sobbed. Catherine cooed. The sound of the telephone ringing rose from downstairs. Well, said Quentin, finally getting up, I'll get my own tea then. <laughs> 